0: Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of your thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool because you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed, so get informed welcome to a spooky episode of the leftist lit podcast with your host colin orton he him and your host
1: spooky al gropey she hurts <laughs> and our illustrious guest
2: jesse fishkin no preference on pronouns
1: all right and badass. Yeah, badass. It is spooky Halloween season, and the spookiest thing is stinging your own gender in the face and saying, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> gender. Today, I hardly
0: know her. Um, uh,
1: before we get into the news segment, Colin, let me at least introduce the reading. I can see you clicking open your tabs. today. <laughs> got so many tabs. <laughs> ah, it's cursed. Everything's cursed. Spooky season. Today, we are. And now I, I wasn't fully sure if you wanted to read these and judge them individually, or if we're going to do like a comparative thing where we like pull from both to make let's statements. Do,
0: let's do one per episode, but because of the way we do things, we'll probably end up be doing the third just because of how we are as people.
1: Good. Because that's fully how I intended to do this. I thought we were all going to all push it into one and just go off. Um, we are going to be reading the story of a life by Connie S. Rosati. And meaningfulness and time by... Per, forgive me on pronunciation. Anti-Kalpinen. Kalpinen. Kalpinen.
0: So, you know what's spookier than, than anything? Hmm. An infrastructure bill getting gutted in front of all of our eyes. You know what's been cut from the infrastructure bill? What? Student debt relief. Free four-year public college. Free community college. An increase to the federal, federal minimum wage. A public option for health uh, health insurance, the eviction moratorium, paid family leave, deportation morator- moratorium, uh, any kind of like dental uh, or vision or hearing coverage. Not to mention any kind of environmental regulations. And the overall budget has been cut from uh, six billion to one point seven five uh, to appease Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema.
1: Weren't some of those things like part of Biden's electoral platform? Okay, just making sure I didn't hear wrong.
2: (sighs) We support anarcho-Bidenism. It's all part of the larger plan. (laughs) Hashtag no malarkey. No gods, no
0: malarkey.
1: No gods, no Bidens, no baloney. I need to go in my room. I am in my room. Speaking of malarkey,
0: uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo has been charged with misdemeanor sex crimes. Only misdemeanor. And may face arrest. Only may. We'll see. In strike news, 500,000 South Korean workers are on strike. Good. For what, though? There are 15 detailed demands of the strike, but there are three basic areas, according to Truthout. um, Abolish, quote, irregular work, which is the gig economy and extend labor protections to all workers, give workers power in economic restructuring decisions during times of crisis, and nationalize key industries and socialize basic services like education and housing. Good shit.
1: Oh, shit. That's comprehensive.
0: 500,000 workers.
1: Pushing for social reforms. Wow, what does that sound like?
0: (laughs) Um, Also, uh, so on October 16th in Rome... Uh, Italy's this is from uh, Reuters quote Italy's biggest workers unions rallied in Rome on Saturday and called on the government to dissolve the neo-fascist groups involved in last weekend's violent protests against the COVID-19 health pass last week police arrested 12 people including leaders of the extreme right-wing Forza Nuova, after thousands took to the streets to oppose mandatory green passes for all workers Um, there were like right-wing brawls and 12 uh, like the leaders of, uh, of like Italian fascist groups were arrested because of their participation in like extremely violent anti COVID, uh, marches.
1: Good.
2: I will add, uh, Italian Antifa holding it down,
0: got a comrade out there. Good numbers on their sides. Honestly, um, black block is, is originally, uh, an Italian, Thing, isn't it? It's either that or it's German originally but it, it it comes from the, I think it's German, the autonomen in the early 30s but there's a really strong anti-fascist tradition that uh, dates back for over 100 years in Italy. Mm. Of course it didn't end up working out very well but they fucking did their best.
1: Apparently people will still cry in Italy if you uh, sing the song uh, Bella one, Ciao? Yep yeah. If you shower too close to someone that lived through anyway um
0: understandably which, yeah horrible um, horrible thing so from rolling stone speaking of fascist mobs uh exclusive january 6th protest organizers say they participated in quote dozens unquote of planning meetings with members of congress and white house staff
1: we already knew a couple members of Congress were like at least complicit alerting them of the positions of other leaders, but. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. So the people who either participated in these conversations or had top staffers participate in these conversations. So staffers that like could not have done so without their consent. uh, That's Collins editorializing, not Rolling Stone, but. The list includes of people who either were there or had staffers, top staffers, participate. Are Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks, Madison Cawthorn, Andy Briggs, and Louis Gohmert. So these these folks uh, fully had meetings with people who participated in the uh, January sixth, dozens quote unquote of times. We live in the worst timeline, which is simultaneously the most
2: interesting one.
1: That's true. Yeah, oh, it's, it's a hellscape, but at least it's entertaining. Marjorie Taylor Greene—that's hilarious. Sorry, <laughs>
0: um, I do have to have one more story. I'm sorry uh, because we've had two hog marches in the last uh, 72 hours. Um, the Where? NY uh, in New York. What the NYPD have marched constantly. Uh, they took over the Brooklyn Bridge. I think on Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, like 7,000 of them demanding that they be exempt from vaccine <laughs> mandates. Ugh. They had another one this morning at 10 a.m. at Carl Schurz. Shur- Shorts? On 80. 80-th, yeah, that's
1: sh- a place that's frequented by like protests. Uh-huh. There's a vigil there every weekend for victims uh-huh. of police uh-huh. brutality. They
0: intentionally marched there today at 10 a.m.
1: That's so mm-hmm. shitty. Oh, my God. They also,
0: (sighs) uh, two days ago, they took over the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, which was famously done by BLM protesters last summer. who uh, 700 of whom were arrested and brutalized by the NYPD. Like, I know somebody who got their fucking nose broken. I don't know if it was, I think it was at that protest, but I could be wrong. Like, I know people who, like... 700 people were brutalized and arrested when non-cops did that. And so off-duty cops then had the gall to, because they can, because laws don't exist for them.
1: That was the same, summer of 2020 was when a kid got picked up in a white van and they just like mm-hmm. didn't return them home. Summer of 2020 was like peak cop shittiness, mm-hmm. especially in New York. I mean, not peak, obviously, but... ah, I'm sorry.
0: Speaking of shittiness, Kyle Rittenhouse...
1: We're done with the new segment, Colin! Save I it can't. for next there's week! So
0: mu- there's so much news, and it's all happening right now because Kyle Rittenhouse's trial will have started by the time the next episode airs. All right. Um, but uh, the judge, um, whose name is Bruce Schroeder, uh, said that... The lawyers cannot refer to the people Kyle Rittenhouse murdered as victims during the trial. Uh, But it would be okay to refer to them as rioters or arsonists.
2: I heard about that one.
1: First of all, por qué no los dos? You can be two things. Second of all, that's. uh, uh,
0: Victims would be too uh, politicized.
1: Too correct, maybe. But arsonists isn't too political. Correct. I'm gonna be in a really great mood for this reading. I can just feel it. Oh, I feel it in my veins.
0: Okay, that concludes. Sorry, I had a bunch of shit to go through because that trial is starting next week.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, fuck. God damn it. There's a trial that we're three days into and it's gonna be over. The organizers of the 2017 Unite the Right rally uh, which saw dozens injured and one dead, Heather Heyer, are on trial today.
1: Oh, shit.
0: October 28th. One second, let me pull it up. Um, they're being
1: charged with her death, I'm guessing. It's,
0: they're not being charged with, uh, it's a civil case.
1: Oh, okay. Because
0: they're suing a bunch of them and a bunch of organizations, like Identity Europa, I think is one of them. Uh, here we are. Um, but like Matt Heimbach is there, Richard Spencer is there representing himself. Get him. Uh, Get almost him. all of them are representing themselves. Chris Cantwell is there and admitted to two assaults in front of the jury. Peak um, God complex.
1: This oh, motherfucker.
0: Molly Conjure has a real uh, is live tweeting it, and I highly recommend the thread. Fair warning. All of those people are fucking monsters, and it is hard to read the Twitter thread, let alone watch the video, because there is a video. uh, They're, like, broadcasting the trial. You can watch it if you want. Um, But it's not going well for those fucking Nazis right now. Um, I imagine they're
1: completely unrepentant.
0: Correct. Uh, The one lawyer that they got is also a huge Nazi. So, like, yeah. This has been... This has been percolating for the last four years, but it's happening right now. Um, And they are suing them under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which is when the first Klan raised a huge army of surviving Confederate soldiers and attempted to march on Washington. Uh, And that law was uh, in an effort to combat that, Um, if I'm not mistaken, which I could be. But yeah, it's fucking crazy uh highly recommend taking a look but things are not looking good for uh our nazis and don't call them
1: our nazis well the reason i brought it up is
0: because we have been talking about matt heimbach's fuckery Um, for over a year and he might finally see some justice
1: that's true i still don't not as
0: much as he fucking deserves um but uh, so we'll keep an eye on how that is going and we'll update it next week. They, they're not our Nazis as in yeah. our, our precious little babies, Aww, but uh, they're, they're huge pieces of shit who we've been watching for some time.
1: Ooh, they're who we've been stalking virtually for <laughs> news reports. This <laughs> doesn't yeah. make it sound much better, but I'd actually prefer that anyway. Yeah.
0: So I'm sorry that this week took uh, so long in the news segment, but there's a lot of shit that happened. This fucking week, right before a spooky Halloween!
2: Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I have one event Go, that please, happened please. just today. Uh, Steven Dossinger was uh, taken to jail, and he today is his first day in jail. Uh, if y'all know who that is.
1: Who's that?
2: He was the person who sued Exxon on behalf of an entire village in, I think it was Brazil. Holy shit, they took they, him to prison. Yeah, they took him to prison on a misdemeanor. It's the first time anyone has ever had to serve a jail sentence on the
0: specific crime he was charged on. And he's been under house arrest for yeah. like two years, which is, I think, the longest house exactly. arrest of his type. Yeah, yeah
2: ever. It, it's unprecedented. And it's all because of uh, Exxon trying to prevent other people from suing them. Mm-hmm.
1: Is he being imprisoned in Brazil?
2: Uh, no, the U.S. for six months.
1: Why in the U.S.? Because Exxon's an American company? Yeah, because Exxon
2: was the one who filed a lawsuit against him. Because the the claim is not that the legal work he did for these people was wrong or unjust, but that some of the ways he got information for his trial was illegal.
0: So go to jail? No! You've inconvenienced (laughs) Exxon. Go to prison. The corporate
1: overlords have deemed you a pest. You're going to jail. Fucking it's a political
2: prisoner. I mean, That's which is correct. Uh, go for it, Jesse. Sorry. No, no, I was just going to say Freeman, man, six months. We, there's been a lot of stories on him. Uh, Democracy now did an interview with him today. Uh, like three or four hours before he went into prison. He went off on it. Go listen to it. Support this person. Absolutely. Say his name again. Uh, Steven Dozinger.
1: Steven Dozinger. Does he have a GoFundMe?
2: Absolutely. There are quite a few,
0: I believe. Steven
1: Dozinger. He has a GoFundMe. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) You
0: you know what's almost as spooky as um, being locked in a prison for mildly inconveniencing an oil company? What? (laughs) Trying to define whether or not you've had a good life.
1: (laughs) Woo. time to stare mortality in the face, folks. Let's get into the reading with The Story of Life by Connie S. Rosati and Meaningfulness and Time by Antti And Jesse, you have a bit of background in these articles. You're the one that suggested them. Do you yeah. want to like tell us a little bit about your studies?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm doing my thesis right now on hospice because uh, believe it or not, it was a really cool, radical leftist movement in the 70s. And oh, the 60s, it was a result of basically people saying we got all this new technology with uh, this, this whole new industrial revolution, got shit like pacemakers, people can survive in comas. Uh, we're no longer really confined by this idea of, you know, if we can't keep you alive, uh, we can't do anything for you. Now the question's, how long do we keep you alive? And hospice decided, you know, Maybe we shouldn't treat people like cattle in medical beds. And maybe death is kind of the most sacred thing you'll ever do aside from being born. So we should have a separate institution for that. But then, like everything, money fucked it up. And it became impossible given the sheer size and scope of the demand for institutions like this. Because people were reasonably pissed off by hospital care and a focus on quality of life, which is really just a way to allocate resources, not a way to think about people. And uh, hospice had to incorporate into Medicare and essentially just became another type of hospital. And basically, my thesis is that hospice either needs to return to those radical roots or just disband entirely because it is reducing the possibility of people to have a meaningful life.
1: Ooh, that fucking rules. Now, now I I already want to just start talking about your thesis. I'm not going to because we have to do reading, but I will say I do. I want to know where you draw. We'll probably talk after the podcast if we have time, but I want to know where you draw the overall quality and meaning of someone's life from their end of life care. But I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit.
2: We will definitely get into that in the reading. Uh, That is Basically, I determined my take on that based on the, uh, not the meaningfulness in time, the story of a life.
1: Ah, that is the one I didn't read as intently, so (laughs) we will have to discuss, but if we would like to get into it, I don't know where you guys want to start. If we want to start with the story of a life or meaningfulness in time, meaningfulness in time was the one that I very much got. Although I will say, and we might have a little bit of a continuation of our last series of debate um, with a little bit of debate, because, okay, preface, preface first. Meaningfulness in time, I would say, is the best primer to the story of a life, because if you're unaware with any of the concepts they're discussing, primarily of hedonic uh, life, okay, it's hedonic versus narrative, or narristic. what was it? It's been a minute.
0: Narrativist?
1: narrativist hedonic versus narrativists conceptions of lifetimes like how they each it explains a little bit but from a clearly narrativist uh standpoint it's the biases in narrativist because they're trying to make an argument for how narrativism is the best way to deduce a person's like the not just the value of their life but like I don't even know how to preface this. Basically, both articles are about meaning in life, having a meaningful life, and that's what the first author of, of Meaningless in Time, Anti Kalpanen, like hinges their, a lot of their argument on, is by introducing the concept that just having a good life, you need to have also a meaningful life, and then the story of a life kind of discusses, I guess, where they find meaning. Jesse, do you want to? Yeah.
2: Story of a life is actually, it's about how the way we tell the stories of our life lead us to determine meaning. Because Mm -hmm. thinking about humans as monkey brain, uh, it makes a lot of sense to the monkey brain to think about things in a narrative structure. It's not arbitrary. There's a beginning, middle, and an end. And we have no control over the events in our life for the most part. But the thing we do have control over is how we think about those events, i.e. how we tell the story, which means that how you tell the story can shape whether or not in your own mind you think your life has meaning. And as we'll talk about in the Meaningfulness and Time article, that's a pretty big component of whether or not your life actually does have meaning.
1: I don't know if I... Okay, yes, correct. Very good introduction. I am going to be butting heads with this theory a lot, Because I am a bit of an existentialist and I, in the break between hedonist and narrativist, I am definitely more of a hedonist. I haven't read any hedonist theory. I can't speak to the hedonist viewpoint specifically, but my, my past experiences with philosophy that runs on these binaries has usually tended me to be towards like the Dionysian rather than the Apollonian, which is what this feels like to me, correct me if I'm wrong. It's a little bit.
2: No, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, I definitely am against the hedonist argument in this one, although I do agree with the overall existentialism. So I think we're going to have a fun talk on this one. Let's
1: get it. All right. I did not organize my notes the same way I usually do. So I don't even know how to start. Colin, do you have a place you would like to start at or like a place you'd prefer to begin the conversation? I'm already getting into, we're already. That's a about to great question, lists, Al. So.
0: Um, so if we're going to start with meaning, uh, meaningfulness in time, uh, as that is the better primer, uh, I think we should, I mean, we could start by summarizing the argument made in meaningfulness in time, which is, unless I'm very much mistaken that the hedonistic view of goodness may be not entirely correct. Uh, the hedonistic view being at least as it's framed in the article uh, that the goodness quote unquote of a life can be weighed in essentially net moments of happiness versus net moments of sadness. And if uh, you have more of an accumulation of net moments of happiness, then you have had a, a life better a better life measurable in the amount of time spent happy. Uh, This argues that while that is the case, the narrative of life can be measured also not just in goodness, but in goodness too. And in the building of a narrative around what you did, how, when, uh, and in the passage of time, starting good, ending bad, ending bad, but starting good, Um, what you did, if you were successful, can have, I believe the argument is, more of a weight than net happiness.
1: Yes, I think. Well, I was, yes, what you said is definitely what I read. Um, It's the, I was thinking of it more in terms of the teleological view that he, like, phrases his thesis as, is that correct? Like, he's saying, I'm supporting the teleological view. Teleology is basically just like looking at things from a perspective of what purpose they serve or what they're used for rather than where they come from. Um, See, I
0: didn't know what that meant. So I, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I think that's absolutely the words that we read on the page and a correct interpretation of them, but I don't think it's the only interpretation of it. I think I did not necessarily read it as a refutation of hedonism i think it was also a an acknowledgement that that is an aspect but not the entirety of the story and the, i um, think it create a way
0: to incorporate that into a larger story the author actually lays out uh a x is better than x is better it's um hard work is better than noble failure is better than sheer luck is better than deterioration like um
1: which are all narrative
0: examples the author which are yeah there's the author tells a series of of narratives of like uh actions performed and happiness gained and then ranks them and it's yeah it's not a refutation uh it's a building on a sort of uh if you know, we have our, our scale that is hedonism. We have a sort of then, I, I thought of it as a a, a graph, you know, uh, adding the vertical axis to the horizontal axis.
1: Nerd. Fuck off. That, yeah, they do get into it. I do not know the pronouns of this author because I don't recognize the name. Um, but Jesse, would you happen to know them? Uh, I am pretty
2: sure it is She. Her, but I could be mistaken.
1: We'll go with it for now, and I'll probably Googling find out.
2: out. Oh, thank you. We're call. gonna
1: Google first for now. I will use gender-neutral pronouns. Um, uh, they do eventually bring up anecdotes of like, "Wouldn't you rather live this life than this life?" And it, a lot of it has to do with goal-oriented things and creating, like, basically, if you are able to view your life as a neat story that had a conclusion that built to a a peak it will it is better to have that narrative meaning than to just have an overall good life where good things happen to you and you just catch a bunch of lucky breaks basically but i don't know if i agree is the thing
2: (laughs) yeah i mean i think the two things that i want to add just in our, our preface to the discussion is the distinction that they make between local and global value. Yes. Really sort of the idea of where hedonism plays into it. Uh, Local value, if you think about your life as a story, uh, that story can be divided into chapters. The things that you care about in each chapter are your local values. The things that you care about over the whole story, those are your global values. And the argument is hedonism cares mostly about local values and those don't necessarily add up to global value. And the other thing would be just to define meaningfulness before we go on, at least as the author does. And they say that it's the appropriateness of key emotions, like um, feelings of well-being, of recognition of your autonomy as a rational and individual agent. Uh, self-validation, feeling like you're a dignified person.
1: Like pride. I think the use of pride kind of like, it it had an interesting connotation to me. They were saying like feeling pride and like being justified in those feelings. But my thing is, I, I, I just also don't agree with their definition of meaningfulness. But I need to put that aside so that we can actually discuss the article because otherwise we're going to be here all day. Um, but it is one thing that's very nice about this article is that he lays out literally every point he's going to touch on. He discusses local versus global and thank you for the definition of local versus global, because I actually don't think I understood it in that way. And having that makes a lot more sense. But let me find the little place where he just like, here's what we're I going think
0: on Uh, is he? I couldn't find anything, but I think auntie is uh, he, him.
1: Ah, good. I wasn't even paying attention to what pronouns I used in that last conversation, so maybe I already gendered them correctly. I don't know. But <laughs> let's see. I
0: mean, the first example, the one that really stuck with me, uh, this is literally just like the first bit of the article, um, but he compares... What if, uh, uh, the quote, the newly graduated Dr. Ernesto Guevara, Mm. uh, chose instead to just be a doctor in his hometown and live eight years longer than if he went to Cuba and became El Che. And that sort of, I think, very effectively sets Mm. up the mechanism of the debate. I'm I'm slapping my microphone around. Mm. Um... The, the idea of struggle and an early death versus living a comfortable life as a doctor, it is a narrative philosophy, and the use of narrative, I thought, was very effective. I mean, it would have to be.
2: Yeah, and that also calls into the, uh, the distinction of the higher purpose being an important part of that, but that higher purpose being separated from the archaic religious notion of higher purpose, which means it can only come from God.
1: Yeah, I loved that little bit where he's like, we feasibly can't use God as a higher purpose anymore in these discussions about meaning. And I think this came out in 2011. Was that the, or was that the other one? Because I did go back and was like, when was this written? <laughs> Just because during that uh, part about God as a higher power being the motivating force for someone's narrative. the. But while we're finding that date, and I am scrolling, the when it comes to the Che versus happy uh living luxuriously with a happy job not necessarily happy but i where i really rub up against this oh it was 2011 where i rub up against this is all what use is this philosophy to individual people because and i want to start the debate here (laughs) jesse because i under, I do see how having a narrative conception of the passage of one's life can be not only comforting, but affirming and like provide probably all sorts of physiological benefits because when you feel better, you take care of yourself and you extend your, not just extend your life, but you like make the days that you live feel more full. But as someone that does view kind of everything we do as actions taking place within not avoid from each other, but avoid from like the fate of our planet and the fate of our species. I've been living in the heat death of the universe recently, but so where do we take this philosophy to apply it? Cause if we can calculate the meaningfulness of someone's life, how would that have any, like, how would we apply that to the people that we know to actually like improve the lives?
2: Well, I, I do have a response and it is fully centered around hospice. And the, Perfect. First, the first distinction I will say is I do not want to be put on the side of arguing that we can make calculations about the meaningfulness of other people's lives. That is solely up to you as an individual. And this article has just given you one way that you might say, yeah, that kind of vibes with me. Um, but as far as hospice goes, when you look at the sort of the story of a life, it sort of tends to have an arc where you're, you're climbing, you're climbing, you go to college or you don't depending on where your life goes, you get your liberal arts degree, you figure out your job, you do it, it's not work, it's what you care about, uh, you are the top of the top in that job, and then you retire and then you start getting older And pretty soon you're at an age at which you can't take care of yourself and you qualify for something like hospice. And they put you in hospice. And going back to this idea of local and global value, uh, hospice, like all hospitals, run on the metric of quality of life, which is totally local value. It's you've broken your arm, you get a cast. You're depressed, we we'll give you these meds. You have uh, you're in a coma, we monitor you until you wake up. And while they're focusing on all these local values, they are ignoring the narrative that the person in the hospice is telling themselves. And I think if you look at sort of the overall conception most people have of a hospice center, which is just where old people go and wait for death, essentially, I think the narrative that you can't help but tell yourself if you're in a situation like that is well, I did all this work, I climbed and climbed, and by all accounts, I led a meaningful life. But now it's stopped. Now I am here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we view as like this a certain pre- threshold in senior citizen of agedness is your narrative is over, but you are still alive. You have completed all of the things that make a life meaningful, but you're not dead yet. But those two points should coincide. And essentially what hospice becomes is just keeping you alive as long as possible, because that's what we're medically, ethically obligated to do without addressing the fact that that life is not very meaningful. And I think insofar as we're storytelling creatures, I don't mm-hmm. think any one chapter matters more than any other, except mm-hmm. for that last one. Because I think the real purpose of that last one is to look back at everything and sort of dot your I's and cross your T's of your own lived narrative. And if all of it led to lying in a hospice bed, waiting for death, being cared upon by indifferent people who... Are really only there for a paycheck and to make sure that you don't die from something they could have prevented, you can't help but look at your life as meaningless. And you can't, regardless of all of the hedonistic pleasure you got, regardless of anything else, the fact that that is the chapter that you are in can render a life meaningless if not recognized and acknowledged. Sorry, that was a very long ramble.
1: No, it's not a ramble. It was an argument and it was a well-ordered one. I see where you're coming from and I'm curious to see how you would actually actualize that narrativist philosophy inside of a hospice situation. Like what actions would be taken to display that? Because like, I imagine, so would they like introduce talk therapists to walk them through their life and like, let's write the story of your life together. Let's like conceptualize everything that's happened to you in a way that's going to make you feel fulfilled before the end they wouldn't say it like that of course because that sounds horrible but um like i can imagine those sorts of things but i also when i'm thinking about what happens in hospice now based on your description and based on what little i know i don't see that as a truly hedonist method because it yes it is providing for those local needs for the need to like sustain life but hedonism is a lot more about like and again i have not read the hedonist philosophy from this particular school of philosophy about the meaning of life so i don't know what the actual hedonist perspective is maybe i'm not a hedonist maybe but i would see like a hedonistic hospice care as more like making happy memories before the end not to distract from the end but to provide like quality of life in the form of living like if I was running a hospice care, we would be taking them to on nature walks, like baking cookies. Like that, that sounds a little bit like if I was president, we would all live together and be friends. But I mean, like having drinks, like going ballroom dancing in a safe environment so that they can experience things they did as a youth. Like, I think a lot of pleasure can be found in end of life. That is not necessarily about like making sure, but anyway, I also want to say before we get off too too far off track because I'm already off track. One of the people that I've met in home hospice workers who go into the house of a dying person. My mother has a very close friend from her youth as a hospice worker. And they are some of the strongest motherfuckers you will ever meet. Hug a hospice worker today. Oh yeah. But I think that the majority of uh, current hospital based hospice and the fulfilling of local pleasures is more about money. As you said, towards the end of your statement, it's more about this is what a hospital is supposed to do. So we're going to perform our function. I don't think it's actually about fulfilling their local pleasures. You
0: you brought up an interesting point about the utility of uh, this philosophy. uh, Why would you do this? Uh, My takeaway was um, as a call to action, especially that like ranked system at the end of each analysis, Mm-hmm. Um, it is better uh, to have striven and failed than it is uh, to sit uh, and be lucky um, and be happy in uh, happy and inactive is mm-hmm. ranked lower than active towards something you believe in and uh, not moment for moment happy. It ranks struggle toward something you believe in as gratifying if not uh, pleasurable Pleasurable.
1: yeah yeah but why i'm sorry i found all of the did they like actually poll people on these answers like which of these lives would you rather live because it doesn't read like that
2: no that's far too scientific for a philosophy journal (laughs)
1: yeah okay which is what i thought thank you for confirming so why does the author take such like To me, it's hubris. To me, it is the ultimate act of, like, I know better than everyone, to be able to look at a series of stories about lives and say, this one was more meaningful than this one. Like, sorry, continue.
2: Oh, no, I I was just gonna say, I think you're absolutely right. Um... I think that is a major problem in, like, philosophy since fucking Descartes. If I have to think about him again, I'm going to scream. Oh. Uh, and, but it's, they all say, I'm going to prove X, Y, or Z. But then all they do is give you a story that kind of feels right. And if exactly. it feels right enough, <laughs> then yeah, that's a systemic issue in just all of this shit.
1: Um, I'm glad you said that because a line I wanted to pull out if you were of the same mind was this is my least favorite kind of philosophy not this particularly, but the writing feels like a mathematician trying to solve for uh, the Garden of Eden like the fucking, we're gonna find this great thing and I'm gonna prove it with this graph (laughs) but continue, I didn't mean to cut you off I just wanted to throw that in
2: No, you're all good, but yeah, I think the thing that you can get out of this or any of the writings that do that is just to have an internal dialogue with yourself of saying, if I agree, what part of the arguments did I latch onto that made me agree? If I disagree, what is that sticking point And what does that mean I
1: actually believe? Mm-hmm. You sound like my philosophy teacher. I got to go back into school. <laughs> it's very Zen. I love it. OK, um, to touch on, we basically this whole argument has basically been us going over the first section and talking about those anecdotes and like what they mean about the argument. Unless there's is there anything else? Because I just wanted to say I also disagree with that final like this kind these kind of lives are better than these kind of lives, like for uh, yeah. in a row. I Which can see, is how
0: like each segment is ended. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I can see where they get this argument. I already forgot the pronouns we said because I've been so in my, in my brain hole. Um, but so basically they go through each of these stories and then they, the, the basic examples are, this is a life that began in a rough place and ended in a good place through no work of the individual. Like they were raised in poverty and then they were catapulted to wealth by lucky chance. Then they had the opposite Someone born in wealth that is lowered to poverty and dies miserable because of chance. And then they have the examples of someone that is born in a really, really bad situation, works their way up and succeeds. And then someone that was born in a great situation works really hard for something and fails. And they rank born in a great place and then experience failure. But with work as more valuable than experiencing success with no work, which, Colin, I think you said earlier, I just wanted to expand what gives some context. Yes. And I don't know if I'd agree with that only from the standpoint of to these only from thinking from the perspective of these individuals, because. If you asked the person living noble failure, if they would have rather experienced sheer luck, they'd probably say, well, I can't say what they would say is the thing. I kept thinking that was my sticking point was I kept thinking if I was any of these stories and I was asked, would you rather have lived this kind of life, whether it was with more meaning, with less meaning, with success, with failure, it doesn't feel like that kind of they literally say the total utility ranking of four lives and maybe that's because i'm more hedonist maybe i'm not hedonist maybe i'm something completely different i think the shape oh my god they even talk about the aristotelian fucking unities uh me and colin are theater majors we had to learn the aristotelian unities and they talk about lives and the fucking okay Anyway, if there's nothing else we wanted to talk about in section one, uh, we can start touching on section two, which I finally found. And that's where he talks about the concepts of meaningfulness versus personal meaning.
2: Yeah. um, One thing I do want to highlight just on those four examples, I absolutely agree. It's really arrogant and ivory towery to try to think that you can assert a value judgment on anyone else's life. Uh, But the thing I did think was really interesting about them was that the way they were setting it up uh, was that from a hedonist perspective, each of the four stories had the exact same meaningful value. They all hit the same notes, just in a different order. So if you were looking at it just as the level of pleasure or pain they experienced, every single person experienced the same sum total pleasure moments, pain moments, but we wouldn't all agree that their lives were equally meaningful. And I think that was just the proof against hedonism that, at least personally, I I vibed with.
1: That is a good point to hit on. I totally forgot to mention that. Yes, these lives, I do, I would agree that when you look at the overall span of each of these anecdotes, that they do have the same net average happiness or happiness points, you know? And
0: the author does a really good job of defining uh, that each of these has the same amount of net happiness. I thought as a pie in the sky thought experiment goes, uh, he did a good job of defining his terms beforehand.
1: Pie in the sky thought experience is my new band name. I'm calling it right now. Um, And I will just I I will not. I will not state my disagreement with that overall statement because that was a very good way to put it, and we're going to move on. (laughs) Uh, The second point is the concept and conceptions of meaningfulness, um, which is basically wherein he... Wait, she. Uh, Uh,
0: Apologies to Auntie uh, when we find out. We will publish an apology. (laughs) Yeah. And a retraction. We've just been shotgunning out genders here.
1: (laughs) Listen. Anyway. Gender is void. Um, The concept and conception of meaningfulness. Basically, the author begins by, with the example of, um, they use a couple different examples of how we personally define things as meaningful. They talk about, oh, a worthless necklace, but that it belonged to your grandmother can be meaningful to you, but not meaningful as a whole or like a fling that could still be happy and bring about a lot of emotions could be meaningless if you don't see it going anywhere. Um, But those things, what we view as meaningful or meaningless is not what is the gold ideal of meaning. And I just, it's another philosophy thing that I go up against. It's like anyone that tries to establish this is the pure ideal. It's platonic, platonic ideal of meaningful.
2: (laughs) I will say I, I heard very recently an interpretation of Platonics that I like better than the bleak accurate problems that you have with it which is that it ex- the whole idea of these Aristotelian ideals these platonic forms is that they are ideal and they will never actually be represented the way we talk about them in discussion in real life but there's sort of this amorphous blob that sometimes the things we experience, we can say, oh, yeah, that fits in there somewhere. And even though we can't do this one-to-one mathematical proof, at the very least, we can say that applies here, that applies there, that's more structure than the void.
1: I prefer the void. (laughs) But yes, that, I mean, that does make yeah, I mean, that's what I see in the Aristotelian unities is like, there's little bits of everything that we can recognize. But I completely agree with, it's never going to apply to real life. And yet every other philosopher, uh, what was it they mentioned? Euphistro? Eufis, Euphithro? Eufith, the Euphithro? Um, later on, I'm sorry. But anyway... So what may be meaningful to each of us individually is not what meaning is. How do we know what meaning is? We got to use that great ideal. And where's the concept? Here we go. This is when, as you were saying, Jesse, they talk about meaningfulness in terms of the appropriateness of the emotions that it brings about in you. And this is again, a plea to common intuition, argument towards common sense, I think, is the logical fallacy, Um, but uh, also, the, the author keeps comparing everyone to Martin Luther King. They use Martin Luther King's life as the ideal of a meaningful life, and I guess I get it, but also, how do you think Martin Luther King felt about it, seeing where we are today in terms of racial injustice and police brutality yeah
2: they also leave out the part where he was assassinated totally by the government
0: Mm. yeah and uh constantly harassed and blackmailed by said government yeah they told him to kill himself like daily daily
1: yeah Mm. (laughs) but they basically using martin luther king as the standard they say and i a meaningful life is one that any person would feel proud to have that no one would begrudge a person for feeling pride in taking part in and that any person would reasonably be inspired by. And to that, I say, bullshit. You don't know what inspires me. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm just going to keep saying variations of that.
0: Well, I mean, you know, ideologically too. Uh, I think it, it may be irresponsible to just say everyone, because, uh, you know, things, the, 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 meaningfulness of somebody's life, uh, and whether or not you should be proud of it, I think is going to break down pretty strongly, uh, along ideological lines.
1: Mm-hmm. They bring up when they get into what Jesse was talking about earlier, the use of God as a higher purpose and how that can't apply. Um, they even mentioned the alternative, like no one would. Oh, here's the quote: Uh, "Either the higher purpose is good." Oh, this is the Euthyphro style dilemma. Dilemma, and Euthyphro was written by. Oh my God, it's been so long since I took philosophy class. Jesse, you're in philosophy classes. Euthyphro is. Awkward.
2: I remember the dilemma, but I don't remember who wrote it.
1: I. It's either Socrates or or it was Plato. Plato wrote Euthyphro. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, here's the quote. Uh, this quote is in reference to why we can't use higher God for higher purpose, like higher purpose. I mean, I'm probably not saying this right, and def- definitely correct me if I'm doing it wrong, Jesse, because this is your wheelhouse. There but, is
2: right or wrong. None of us know anything. We're just screaming into the void. However, you scream is valid.
1: Now you're speaking my language. Uh, Anywho, the quote here. Either the higher purpose is good by some independent criterion, in which case the reference to God is superfluous. We might as well just be talk about actions serving a valuable rather than higher purpose. Or it is not good, in which case serving it would not make life any more meaningful. Working for an evil demon would not make pride or admiration appropriate. Bullshit! You don't know who I hang out with? Everyone I know would be super proud if I was chilling with the devil. But the point still stands that it's gonna break
0: down <laughs> it's gonna break down the the, yeah. the perceptions of evil demon are going to break down along ideological lines
1: yeah it's basically what you said we get on to the voluntarist view are which uh our lives are meaningful when whatever no matter what we do as long as our hearts are in it um but he points out that That's a little bit too much because we're talking about meaningful as a whole, not meaningful for any one purpose, like for any one person. That's what I meant. Words are dumb.
0: (laughs) Didn't the Stoics in ancient Greece define their lives by whether or not it would make a good story and would often kill themselves before they reached old age so that at least they went out with a bang? That's my phrasing, not theirs.
1: Is that true?
0: Yeah, the, uh, the, it was a school of philosophy in ancient Greece. Uh, they were weird fucks. Jesse, are you familiar at all with this or am I? I'm
2: not familiar with that one, but it sounds right, considering one of like the most famous Stoics was just like, you know what would be a really good vibe? I'm just going to get rid of all my worldly possessions and live in a barrel. And everyone was like, that dude seems smart and rational. He's going to be like the founder of our uh, interpretation of the world.
0: Hi, Shane here. Uh, Diogenes was not a Stoic. He was a Cynic. I just had to get that in there. Okay, bye. Anyone who uh, is familiar with the Stoics, come tell me if that's a thing.
1: I hope it is. I hope it is. Back to you. Don't make me talk. I already told you my brain is pudding today. Well, uh, I have to ask before you any further. Jesse, are you a rationalist or and empiricist in most of your philosophical leanings. Uh,
0: what does I, that mean? <laughs> Just for reference.
1: Well, actually, yeah, I should ask, ask, make sure that we both are talking about the same thing. Cause again, it's been several years since I was in a philosophy course and I might be misremembering terms. Um, this is the two different schools of how you uh, gather information, whether it's from the world around you, empiricist, like all like phenomenological interactions, or if it's innate, like if you think that there is a ration, there is a standard for rationality, standard for knowledge that we just unearth within ourselves through teaching. I that's say, not a great way to put it, but.
2: I would say neither. I'm going to do the thing I say when people ask my political view, which is to just say anarchist, because that's not true, but it's close enough that you can guess. And. cool, cool. cool. I'm going to say I like the qualia freak interpretation.
1: Qualia freak? Yeah. So. Give it to me.
2: Okay. So the idea of qualia is that they are the what it's like sensations. So have you ever heard of the story of uh, Mary in the black and white room?
1: No. Wait, I think I
2: might have, but go ahead. Mary is the smartest color scientist who has ever lived and could possibly ever live. If anything can be known about color, Mary knows it. That said, Mary lives in a room that has rendered her entire perception of the world black and white. Now, Ooh. what if the door to Mary's room were to open and she would she were to see color for the first time? Would she learn something new
0: about what color is?
1: <clears> throat>
0: Sorry, throat> that's just the sound of me trying to think about. Uh, Answer that. yes. <laughs> Because there's something called qualia,
2: and qualia is the experience of knowing what something is like. It is, it is the, it's like when you ask someone to describe what chocolate tastes like. The only way you would know what chocolate tastes like is if you have the qualia of having eaten chocolate. Or if you know what being in love is, you have the love qualia. Knowledge gained by experience?
1: That would be empiricist.
2: No, be- I think empiricists is saying that knowledge is only known through experience. I don't. I don't think. Wow. There, I don't think there's any kind of thing such as true knowledge. I know Agree. that the things that I know, I learned through the lens of qualia, and mm. I think that all ideas are hermeneutics. Should I define
0: that one, or do people know that one? You should define it. Um, also, forgive me. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm struggling to wrap my brain around this. Uh, qualia being essentially a, not a second or separate, but a, a a different type of knowledge. Essentially there is knowledge and then there is knowledge, uh, qualia, uh, yeah. Yeah. it's a
1: knowledge you don't experience in your brain it's a knowledge that just like comes about you because you've now experienced something you wouldn't be able to put your finger on it if you could i remember what it was through.
0: are you ago. saying that it's the difference between book learning and uh street smarts no no
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would be empiricist rationalist
2: no, it's the difference between knowing something because you believe it to be true and knowing something because you had to interpret some information through your veil of perception. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. but um,
1: If idea- I remember correctly, there was a lot of people that were trying to associate qualia with religion and, like, this feeling I have where I just... I know there is a God, but that's not what Qualia is entirely. I just, I, that's the reference that once you started giving the example of Mary in the black and white room, I remembered hearing about that in a religious philosophy class. We're back on it. Back on that horse, baby. Yeah. And I actually, I think I agree with that strongly. Like, mostly. Who
0: is hermeneutics? and uh, why?
2: Hermeneutics is, okay, this is another one that I'm going to explain by example. Uh, think of a tree. You are not thinking of one tree. You're not thinking of a memory of a tree. There's, you're not thinking of a specific instance. It is just the concept of tree. And how you came to that concept is unique to you and only you through every single interaction with trees you have ever had. But at the same time, when I say tree, we all know what I'm talking about. That's our hermeneutical understanding of the idea the end of the day all our ideas are totally unique to us and none of us are ever actually talking about the things we think other people are talking about because that's not how language works uh but at the same time the ideas are close enough that
0: we can still communicate meaningfully the convergent evolution of ideas yeah that okay that one that was easier
1: (laughs) you did it
0: okay yeah, I think the only two things that
2: I... I don't like universal truths. The only universal truth is that there are none. Me uh, too.
1: Agree. Strong, strong fucking agree. Continue. But that said, if
2: I were to learn any universal truths, uh, they would be hermeneutical, hermeneutical conceptions of them, and I'd learn them through qualia.
1: I dig it. I'm down to party. Personally, I think... I agree with a lot of that, except for I do not see myself as being a person ever capable of achieving any of those truths. And so I don't try. Let me rephrase that. Um, I think there are some things that humans simply do not have the capacity to fully understand. And rather than feeling and uh, Simone de Beauvoir calls it the fundamental antagonism of like the conception of like knowing you're going to die and knowing you're one of the only kind of people like kind of creatures on this planet that is aware of your own death. So shouldn't that make it special, but it's not that. I don't feel any kind of antagonism from knowing that there are possibly truths and knowing that I don't have the, the fucking consciousness to recognize them. I just take comfort in the fact that no one does. Hard
2: agree. Hard agree. I, uh, hot take for the day. um, Philosophy is great because you, all it does is ask unanswerable questions. Our brain cannot conceive of a rigid wall beyond which we cannot contemplate. We can't imagine the border of the universe. It's, it's just beyond our perception. That's why we have philosophy. We can create questions that are right in front of that border that we can just go around endlessly as a coping mechanism
1: that's what philosophy is it's preparation for death baby it's yeah. just feeling like you have a better understanding of the universe based on mostly nothing um not nothing i mean like people do make logical proofs that make sense they just feel right to you as i think as you said yeah we have to cut the episode here we barely talked about anything because we have to start the are we gonna do two recording sessions yep Well, we're about um, a quarter-ish of the way through the first
0: article, so... We're doing great. I have been Colin Orton, your host. Uh, You can find this podcast at Lift a Slip Pod on Twitter. Send us hate mail at gettinginformedpod at gmail.com. Al, who have you been?
1: Just, uh, Just an old student of philosophy, refreshing her memory, faced with a powerful foe i'm just kidding yeah i mean i do it is so nice to talk philosophy again after so long so pardon me if my brain is taking a bit to catch up but my name the person i am actually is al gropey she her hers you can find me on my website at dot whenever it gets fixed who knows when that's gonna be and you can find me on instagram at al.gros and my impressive foe who hast thou been?
2: I have been Jesse Fishkin, and it has been an absolute pleasure. I love nothing more than finding wonderful foes to rattle off the meanings of life with and then leave more confused than when you started. And I have no socials to plug because OPSEC.
1: Mm. Smart. Smart. Very smart. And we'll see you all next week for who knows if we're going to get through both articles, but maybe one. Bye.